Uh, Jake Novak is with us live via telephone. He is senior editorial columnist at CNBC and joins us on this Friday morning broadcast. Jake, welcome back to JM in the AM. Always great to be here with you, Nachum. Thank you. I greatly appreciate that. The United Nations General Assembly voted 128 to 9 with a bunch of abstentions on Thursday, yesterday, in favor of a resolution condemning President Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Jake Novak, what was your reaction? Well, you know, I, I felt like I was Avraham complaining with, uh, to God about saving Saddam. I mean, it was really bad. We knew that this was a, a basically a, a corrupt organization. But, you know, we had a few more abstentions than we were used to having in these kinds of resolutions. I don't know if we can consider that good news or not. Um, I guess it's somewhat encouraging. I think what it really means is not so much a great love for Israel, but it does mean that the U.S. cloud is still somewhat strong. Um, and Trump might be getting through to a few more countries. And as we've seen in the Middle East here and there, when Israel makes a new friend or a new sort of cold peace with someone, every time that happens, there is a little bit of um, progress. So maybe it isn't as, you know, the news isn't all bad, but of course, it, it's incredibly depressing. The, the, the UN has become about 50% of what it does, at least officially, it seems to be anti-Israel activities. And oh, no. what a waste of time, money, and all the good things they could be doing that they're not doing. Yeah, what's interesting about the, about the roster of countries in the three categories and favor of the resolution condemning the U.S., those against and those who abstain, is that in the column of in favor, France, Germany, and Japan, just for example, couldn't couldn't have the wherewithal to at least abstain from the vote, which is unbelievable when you think about it. And then, you know, Canada abstains. Czech Republic, who you'll recall, were the first to say that they would seriously consider following the U.S. lead of moving their own embassy to Jerusalem, even they abstained from this vote. Yeah, you know, I mean, that just goes to show that there's still political fence-straddling going on. That's nothing new. Um, it, there's just a tremendous amount of cowardice, and a big part of cowardice is just not accepting the truth. And that is something that we've seen in the U.N. for a very long time. There's a long way to go. But, I, I, you know, again, those people, I, I think you get a feeling in the American um, punditry that this was a bad thing, because even though, even the more realistic ones, so say even though they know the U.N. is kind of corrupt, why would you want to bring this out into the open? It's so embarrassing, and it, it it embarrasses the United States. It embarrasses those countries. And I, I think that, you know, if there's one thing we've learned from the election of Donald Trump is that some of these things that we've accept, accepted as the new normal, well, we've got to accept a little bit of terrorism. We've got to accept a little bit of this kind of political chicanery and corruption. Uh, I think a lot more people in the regular voting public, whether it's here in the United States or certainly in Britain, as we saw with the Brexit vote, they're tired of that, Nahum. Right. So I think the point is that this isn't a bad thing for us to have these kinds of resolutions and votes because it does put everyone's cards on the table. And I, helps, and I think it helps us move forward. Jake Novak with us, CNBC. Yeah, but there are a couple of points, though, that I think are, uh, are for, first of all, what do you think of the Trump-Haley threat? What did you think of the fact that both the president and the uh, ambassador are, are, are basically telling the countries of the world, you know, we're watching you very closely, and we give you a, many of you a lot of money, and, and we have a lot of things you guys want, and we're going to watch very closely who's voting against us in the U.N. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen, you know, a threat like that from the United States administration against countries, you know, in that type of forum. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's long, long overdue. I mean, if you want to know one of the biggest issues that is that absolutely exemplifies a dichotomy between Washington, the establishment in Washington, and the rest of the country, foreign aid 
has to be the number one issue. I can't think of an issue that I could go down with a polling company up and down this country that would get more of a solid, you know, negative reaction than the words foreign aid. I mean, I think I, think I could get 70% of the American people, which you never get on any poll these days, to say that they would be in favor of cutting foreign aid. And there might be a little bit, you know, a little bit of a difference that they say completely cutting or not. But if I said, I, what if we wanted to cut foreign aid in the next year's budget? I think we would get 70% approval from the American people. But establishment politicians from both parties for many decades have, have wanted to suppress that desire of the public so that they can make their own deals, and some of them for good reasons. But this is long, long overdue, Noam. The fact is the United States, and, and those people who, a lot of people argue, well, foreign aid isn't a big part of our budget. We shouldn't make that discussion as far as balancing our budget. You know, again, that's the thing. It's death from a million cuts when it comes to our budget. Foreign aid is so unpopular. It should be cut in a lot of instances. In some cases, it should be kept. It depends on the country. And this is a great discussion for us to start having. I mean, I can't think of a, of a president, sitting president, you know, candidates have said it in the past, but an actual sitting president saying the idea that foreign aid is going to be up for debate, you, 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 even though it's on a case-by-case basis, that's a big deal. And again, that goes beyond the UN and beyond Israel. I think this is an American issue that really needs to be addressed. Yeah, it's funny because for those who question the Micronesia love for Israel, <laughs> they always point out that the foreign aid is the key to them. But it's funny, if, if we were to put together a list, I'm not putting you on the spot, I just want your guess. If we're putting together a list of these 128 countries who voted against the U.S., how many of them or what percentage likely are getting some type of foreign aid from the U.S.? It must be the majority of them. Yeah, that, that's more than 60 percent. Absolutely. And that, that's a good guess. And um, and that's not and that's just in the sort of direct programs, you know, that you can basically you could say it's money. Right. Uh, there's other kinds of support. You know, there's there's trade support. There are trade there there are deals where we basically allow countries to trade with us on an evil on an even basis or a fair basis. So it's it's really hard to quantify sometimes in dollars how much aid these countries get from us. And the fact that they're sitting in the UN under U.S. protection, don't forget that. Not not I mean, you know, between between the free parking and everything else, there, yeah. there's a cost to the United States for all that. No question about that. Jake Novak is with us, senior editorial columnist CNBC talking about the UN vote yesterday the um one of the things that is is um <laughs> I shouldn't say difficult for me to understand because I, I'm too old to say that and I've been watching the news for too many years but we we see the outreach that's being done not only from Israel to for instance African nations but let's say for example African nations to Israel right those who are begging Israel for their technology those who are begging Israel for the prime minister to visit to acknowledge them to start trade deals to to advance them into the 21st century and yet these countries you know who are dying for some type of commitment from Israel uh, and many of them are already enjoying it, as we know, as we've seen, you know, the prime minister visit and we've seen the type of relationships that are being formed. They they cannot get the wherewithal to be outspoken in defense of Israel. Well, you know, this is uh, something that is one of those very, very frustrating things about Africa. They are absolutely moving forward economically. And Africa is, is really the place to, to be if you're looking for explosive economic growth and real modernization over the next few decades. But their governments are corrupt. <laughs> they just are. I mean, I, I urge everyone listening to pick up a relatively short book by a woman named Ambiza Moyo. It's called Dead Aid. And her book talks about how 
African government, the African people are quite innovative. They are really moving in the right direction, but their governments undercut them every time. And the problem is Western governments deal with the, with the African governments first and not with individual business people and not with individuals, uh, just regular people in Africa. So money gets stolen. Uh, decisions get made for silly personal political reasons that may have nothing to do with anything going on in the rest of their country. And I think we're seeing that in the UN very regularly. But it's a fantastic book, and it really explains why almost every effort the United States and the West has made to help Africa has failed because of government corruption. And for some reason, Africa is still making some strides. But boy, they have to get uh, clear such a hurdle with, with uh, you know corrupt leadership in almost every one of them. So countries. even with Israel's help, and even with them advancing certain countries. Uh, with technology, et cetera, until you get past the hurdle you just described, uh, not much progress is going to be made. Yeah, we're going to need new leadership in some of these countries. And when we start seeing people coming from maybe different tribes, literally different tribes, or certainly different political groups taking over and, and winning elections or uh, otherwise getting control, then maybe we can start re- readdress it. But I just wouldn't expect help in the U.N. right now uh, because it's just it's a long tradition of political corruption, even when they're making better decisions behind the scenes. You know, the U.N. might want to take up an emergency session about that corruption situation, you know. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. They're spending a lot of time in emergency sessions about Israel, I can tell you that much. Jake Novak on the telephone, CNBC. Um, all right, so now it's uh, almost one year. I mean, we're talking about uh, uh, 2017, the first year of the Trump administration. Uh, we know what happened with the um, with his statements about Israel and Jerusalem and the um, uh, proposed move, the actual... Uh, start uh, to the move of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We see what happened this week with the uh, Rabashkin uh, sentence commutation, which uh, got um, tremendous reaction in the Jewish world, certainly in certain segments of the Jewish world. And many of us felt that, um, if not if not almost everybody, felt that at least uh, when it comes to justice, that uh, uh, he had been given a, uh, a much too harsh of a sentence. How would you evaluate on those issues and uh, and otherwise, how would you evaluate the Trump's uh, the first year of the Trump administration vis-a-vis Israel and the Jewish people? Well, I think it's been very, very good. Um, the good things are these policies that are that mean a lot more than any kind of stray comment that he may or may not have made, and we'll get to that in a second. But the the recognition of Jerusalem, as I as I wrote about for CNBC, and I've said many times, is a very very big step forward for peace. Because in the history of the of the Middle East, when the Arabs are faced with the rock solid truth that not only that Israel is here to stay, but the United States support for Israel is very very strong, that's when we get peace. That's when we got peace with Egypt. That's when we got peace with Jordan. And and I think that's been a big part of this cold peace or, or cooperation where you know Israel's getting with Saudi Arabia. So that was a tremendous tremendous move, not just for the Jewish people in Israel, but for all of the Middle East. The Rubashkin thing is, I don't think, as big a, a, a message to the whole Jewish world or even a big message on policy at all. I think this is just a case of Trump actually being aware of this particular case because of certain connections that he has personally. And uh, I couldn't agree more. I, 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 you know, There's no doubt that Rubashkin was guilty of just about every single crime that he was accused of. But 27 years for what amounted to $27 million of fraud was ridiculously oppressive. It was more than Jeff Skilling of Enron got, more than Bernie Evers of WorldCom got. These were much bigger frauds. These had much bigger economic impact. And his, and his sentence deserved to be commuted. I don't really think there's a big message there, but it was. But you know, it's just good to see a president using the, his clemency powers for a good reason and not to make a big political statement. Because you know, when they do that, they wait until their last year in office and people kind of rot in jail while right. they're waiting to make their, their, their decision. So I think that in general, you've seen a very, very good um, 
response to certain Jewish issues and Israel issues. And of course, the one misstep was a silly statement he made about this incredibly ridiculous event in Charlottesville earlier this year, where a, a manufactured white supremacist march went on. The tr- president was informed that there were some people involved in that march who were not white supremacists, but were just in favor of free speech. And then he made this unfortunate comment that some very fine people were marching in that. And of course, the news media and everyone else decided to miss. Uh, quote him as saying, white supremacists are very fine people, which was really tremendous dishonesty by the news media. The USA Today made the same uh, deliberate mistake uh, just a couple weeks ago in one of their editorials. It was really, really disgusting. But let's not absolve President Trump completely from, from, from that issue. He really needs to be more careful uh, with these kinds of statements because they get misconstrued sometimes uh, on purpose. But in general, this has been more than I think any major Jewish organization or Jewish community could have asked for in this first year. And, um, and if I would have asked you a year ago before the inauguration, I don't think anybody could have predicted this type of relationship that the president seems to be having with the Jewish world. No, because he was he was a little bit coy about American relations with Israel during the campaign. I mean, right. There moments where he just said, like, well, maybe we need to be a little bit more even-handed, and it was right. just such a depressing statement for him to say. And clearly, it was just another one of those off-the-cuff, careless mista- uh, you know, comments that he makes sometimes. And that's frustrating, because presidential messaging power is very, very important. You can't let a president off the hook for saying a stray comment. You just can never do that. So this is a problem that he needs to get uh, controlled. However, I'm in the camp that says actions speak louder than words, even when it's a president because it's close, because presidents, words sometimes are actions. But his actions have been much more important than a stray mistake here and there in his comments. Jake Novak is with us. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Jake Novak is senior editorial columnist for CNBC. What do you think of the uh, tax bill? You know, I loved the tax bill on the business side. Uh, the corporate tax cut, I think, is long overdue. That was very, very s- straightforward and clear. And uh, it got better and better on the small business side of things. Uh, basically, small business is getting an even bigger tax cut. And as many of us know, it's really small business that does all the hiring. I know we're getting a lot of headlines right now about companies giving bonuses and raises, big corporations like right. AT&T and Boeing giving big corporations uh, you know, bonuses and raises. Uh, that'll probably peter out. But job creation comes from small businesses in this country, and they're getting a big tax cut. I don't love every part of the individual tax cut, but that's, just not, that's not just because I live in New York and there's some, there's some trade-offs New Yorkers and people in New Jersey and, and California are going to have to deal with. The only reason why I don't love the individual part as much is because I'm a strong believer in cutting taxes for everyone across the board by the same percentage, and then you make up the lost revenue with, cut, with cutting spending. This right. is the Ronald Reagan um, recipe that works so well, uh, and I, I just don't understand why conservatives or any Republican can't get behind that. Actually, I do understand it. It's a question of basically they, they cannot get away from rewarding certain friends and punishing certain enemies in their policy. That's disappointing. But even the individual tax cut part of it is not all bad. There's some very good things in it. I think middle class people who don't itemize their taxes and don't live in, in, in blue states like, like us uh, are going to do very well on this. And honestly, it's a little bit elitist of those of us in New York who make a certain amount of money and live in a certain type of house to get all in a twist over the fact that, you know, a single mother in the middle of the country who makes forty or $50,000 a year is going to get a big tax cut in the percentage of her earning. So before we start castigating the president over this kind of thing, we need to be very clear that this is basically for most people a tax cut, and that's a good thing. Uh, so you do agree then when I say that the, uh, the only, that the most recent real tax cut in this country was the Reagan tax cut? Yeah, I mean, we got a very, we had very brief 
tax cuts under President George W. Bush. And then the major, major tax cut that was not for, you know, again, I agree with you, not a real tax cut that really didn't hit a lot of people, but it hit the big corporations and it hit big uh, Wall Street firms, was the capital gains tax that Bill Clinton agreed to pretty much under the gun with Newt Gingrich in 1996 and went into effect in 1997. And that's what started the explosion of, the, of Wall Street at that time. Um, but that doesn't affect everybody. This is the first really across the board middle class kind of thing. We have not seen that for a long time. And one of the things that I've loved so much about this, the only thing that I think is 100% fantastic on the individual side is the doubling of the standard deduction for people who don't itemize. Right. And now listen, you and I probably itemize. I mean, I'm not going to make an assumption about you, but I certainly itemize. Right. It doesn't seem like a big boost to us, but most people in America itemize their taxes, and they're getting a double, uh, double of their standard deduction. And that's the first, and you're right, first time since Reagan, since people like that have seen something really visible in their, in their taxes. Yeah, those of us affiliated with foundations, we take that as welcome news, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, how many people at the holiday parties are asking you what Bitcoin is all about? Well, you know, this is a very interesting thing. I, so I've written about Bitcoin a lot. And, you know, when you write about Bitcoin, you get a massive army of people on social media <laughs> who basically either want to kill you or sometimes they want to make you a god. And, and so I kind of... Uh, I, I, they were kind of confused about what to do with me because I, around the time that uh, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon and other people were saying Bitcoin was worthless, I came out very much pushing against that. I believe Bitcoin has a tremendous amount of value. I just think that a, tr a good percentage of its value is connected to, unfortunately, it's the criminal activity that, that it spawns. People can easily launder money with Bitcoin. They can get anonymity from Bitcoin. I think that this, this, this basically is, I would say, 30, 40, maybe even 50 percent of its value, but it's still very valuable. I mean, geez, if you say if you're going to slash 50% off of Bitcoin where it's trading right now, and by the way, it changes every second, but you're still talking about six, seven thousand dollars, even if you uh, per Bitcoin, even if you slash it by 50%. What, what is it right now? Around thirteen thousand? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a joke about a kid who asks his father for Hanukkah for a Bitcoin, and he says, "Listen, I don't have fifteen thousand dollars. What do you need sixteen thousand dollars for? Twelve thousand five hundred dollars? I don't have right now. I mean, <laughs> in the course of three seconds, it changes. Because the but, reason um, I'm the reason I still I'm think it's very valuable. The reason I'm asking for the number right now is we're sitting on the twenty second of December. And, it, and, even, and even people who know nothing about economics like myself always, always have been told that January 1st of any year um, usually creates some type of change and usually a change in the downward direction. Is it possible that Bitcoin will just collapse uh, once the uh, new year is with us? I don't think it'll completely collapse, but we might see it back down in the single digits, you know, single doubt, below 10,000. We right. might see that. But I do think that inherently it has a tremendous amount of value. It will become a new commodity in the, in the ways that we think of oil, in the ways we think of fine art, the ways we think of precious metals, uh, which means that it's not going to be the $500,000, $600,000 uh, per Bitcoin thing that some people are predict predicting. I think that that's unrealistic. I also think that governments are absolutely going to do what they can to crack down on the anonymity and the money laundering connected to it, and that will take away some of its trading value. It just will. But it's still valuable. It's valuable because of its portability. It's valuable for people who do foreign exchange. It's, uh, so it's not going away, but I just don't think that it's going. And I, so I don't think it's going to crash, but I also don't think that this is a chance. You know, right now, if someone's buying and right now, they shouldn't expect to see the kind of 5,000% increase that people have gotten, you know, if they bought it a couple of years ago. Is there an Israeli connection to any of this, to these, uh, to these cryptocurrencies? Uh, boy, who who would be surprised if there if there were? Yeah, you know, exactly. Absolutely, there must be. <laughs> um, whether or not, I mean, there there are some issues. I think, you know, you know, the, 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 that question needs to be answered on two ways. Economically, where I think that there are some things where Israel could have some fantastic advantages in the way that Bitcoin is mined and moved. On the other hand. 
Israel could face some vulnerabilities because, again, who do you think uses Bitcoin for money laundering a lot of the time? I'm talking about terrorists and other organizations that are hostile to Israel. So it's probably a wash for Israel as far as that's concerned until we get some kind of bigger crackdown from governments on the way that it's being used for nefarious purposes. Uh, Finally, Jake Novak, you're you're surrounded at your office, I would assume, by a lot of people who know a lot about economics. Sure. Uh, And and I'm curious if I were to take a poll at your holiday party uh, of what what has impressed uh, your colleagues the most from Israel, which uh, which um, uh, company, uh, which um, uh, uh, what's the word startup? You know, which, I don't know if it's Waze or if it's um, Mobile Eye. You know, which is the one where you saw you know people react with awe of what was coming out of Israel. You know, it, not so much over this past year, but, but over my entire tenure, about five and a half years at CNBC, I would have to say it's Mobileye wow. um, because of the way that major auto companies who don't traditionally absorb new technology very quickly. Boy, did we learn that the hard way if you lived in, you know, you grew up in like, like I did in America in the 1970s. Boy, right. did we learn about how American auto companies do not absorb new technology quickly. Correct. They still don't do it quickly enough. But Mobileye has been swallowed up by, by American and foreign automakers so quickly. And of course, you know, now, Nahum, they're moving into the next step. You know, Mobileye has done this outer outside of the car technology right. where they can see now they are moving into the inside of the car, which is going to be crucial for self-driving cars. Self-driving cars need to know who's in the car, what they're doing and when they're doing it, right. and Mobileye is going to make that possible. It's going to make self-driving cars closer to reality very, you know, very quickly. So I would have to say it's Mobileye. You know, our auto industry uh, reporter here, Phil LeBeau, who's very, very connected with all the transportation industry, uh, has mentions Mobileye all the time. And there was a period a couple of years ago where he was amazed at how quickly the American automakers were working and, and taking on that technology. Interesting. So you essentially, based on, on, on what you said before, uh, you agree that um, not much has changed in the uh, automobile in the uh what is it now, 100 years, close to 100 years? Not much not, has changed over the not, years. Not, not enough, not enough. I mean, it's still um, not as safe as it should be. I mean, even though it's a lot safer, I mean, right. there's still there are still so many parts of, of driving that are not the greatest. I think, though, you don't want to put, I don't want to put all the blame on the auto industry for that. I think another a big part of it is just the way that we design our roads and design our highways in this country. You know, a lot of people, when we talk about infrastructure in this country, they think, oh, the problem is it's, it's falling apart. And that is certainly a problem in certain areas. But the biggest problem is the way they're designed in the first place. For those of us who have ever been on the Cross Bronx Expressway, I know a lot of the listeners know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, you could repave that thing every five seconds and it still wouldn't work right. It's not, so that is a big problem. I mean, automobiles can only do what the roads, you know, what the roads allow them to do. And our roads and bridges and everything else like that, even when they're in the best condition, are not designed best for our economy, not designed best for safety, period. And that needs to change. And and before, you know, we get into our trillion dollar infrastructure building program that everyone is promising, we better figure out what's worth keeping and what's not worth keeping before we start fixing stuff that doesn't work. Jake, when's the last time you were in Israel? Uh, a little about ten, more than a year. It's been February, March of 2016. Oh, fairly recently. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that, speaking of Ipster, that that's a country that is doing some things right and some things wrong when it comes to transportation. I love all the stories about light rail and major rail connections going on in Israel, but Tel Aviv, the streets of Tel Aviv are clogged until late at night, every night. Right. That's a problem. That's not good for the economy. That's not good for, for safety. So, uh, you know, Israel is one of those things where they're doing some things right, some things wrong. I, I, I think they're doing more things right than the United States is in, on, on infrastructure. But every time I see more roads being built in Israel, I'm always thinking, boy, they really need to Think to, think to themselves, do they really need this? Um, so, but but everything else, I you know, I was 
blown away by uh, in a lot of ways. Economically, it is absolutely probably one of the most promising developing countries in the world. No, no doubt about it. Jake, love getting your take on things. Uh, one thing we did learn, very easy to memorize the list of those who voted against the resolution <laughs> in the UN yesterday. Very easy. That's right. I want all Yeshiva High School students to uh, to be able to recite that in class after, uh, after prayers this morning. Yeah, it shouldn't take much time to learn it, that's for yeah. sure. Thanks so much. A good 2018 to you, and I greatly appreciate you joining me this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. Jake Novak is a senior editorial columnist at CNBC, has a great take on so many wonderful things, all the great news that we hear um, from Israel and the UN and the United States and the economy, et cetera, et cetera. And I thank him for joining us. Uh, Those countries against the resolution, here it is, Guatemala, Honduras, Israel, Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Nauru, Palau, Togo, and the United States of America.